This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Go-Go. I'm Dr. Shane. We have a huge lineup for you today with a lot of different people in the studio. We have some great guests. And with me at the moment is my team, of course, Dr. Ewan. Good morning. Good morning. You well? I'm very well. Yeah, and Dr. Jen right next to you. You guys are sharing the mic. Is that okay? Well, I'll cope. Just. Morning, Dr. Shane. <laughs> I noticed you've chosen to share with Dr. Ewan instead of Chris KP, who's also in the studio. I'm appalled, frankly, disgusted, <laughs> hurt, you must know. But it's great to be back. It's great to have you back, Chris. Now, uh, we already have our first uh, guest in the studio today. We're going to mix things up a bit because uh, we want to spend a bit more time with our guests. So we're going to jump into some news at the very end of the show. But to start with, we have uh, Soren Hermanson in the studio. Soren, welcome to Australia. You've just got here a couple of days ago. Yes, I did. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> now, you're, you're here in particular for the Sustainable Living Festival, and we're going to talk a bit about um, that because you've got a, a, a chat on for people down there at 3 p.m. today. But first of all, let's just hear a bit about yourself, um, what, where, where you're from, what, what you're doing, and, and why they invited you over here. Well, I'm I'm from a small community in Denmark called Samsø, which is mm. an island, and uh, <clears throat> we were so fortunate that we were elected to be the Danish Renewable Energy Island in in 1998. Um, due to kind of the, we had a minister who went to Kyoto for the Kyoto uh, COP meeting, the climate conference there, where yep. he announced that Denmark would cut down 21 percent of the present CO2 emission. And on the basis of that, he said, I'll go home and prove that Denmark can do this. So he said, we want to have an independent community who will prove that we in 10 years can convert to 100% self-supplied energy systems. And we won this competition uh, being uh, an individual community and took on the the challenge of of converting to renewable energy. Now, now tell us about the island. How how big is it? How many people are there? And approximately what sort of land mass are we talking about? Well, on a whole whole year basis, there's about 4,000 people living on the island. And it's, it's... it's a farming community, fishing community, a little bit, not so much mm-hmm. as it used to be. Tourism is big. We have a lot of tourists in the summertime. Yep. So on a good day, we can have twenty-five thousand people staying on the island. Right. Uh, so, so, so it's it's kind of a like a rural local community, like many other communities. It's 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 not that special. I'm I, of course I believe it's very special because yeah. I, I live there. So you've got four thousand people who actually <laughs> live there, and twenty-five people who just come and take over. I mean, I mean how, do you, how do you deal with that? Well, I think I mean in this area you have a lot of different tourist places also where it's it's kind of organized, so yeah. you, you can deal with it and just there's. <laughs> Accommodation and hotels and services and infrastructure that is ready to take care of all these people. We have ferries and yeah and yeah we, yeah, can, do, we can we can feed them. Do, do you do you get surprised when you meet someone from the island who's not working in the tourist industry? Is that yeah no my well they they are they are part time uh, the tourist industry. It closes down in the winter time. Right yeah. When it comes to winter, there's there's nothing. Uh, everybody <laughs> is on holiday. All the hotel people they go to Spain and spend <laughs> spend the winter. <laughs> Look, but believe it or not, Melbourne's the same. Um, <laughs> now, now tell us about the the energy configuration pre 1998. So I mean, what was what was the main uh, sort of I guess makeup. Of, of your energy, especially during these peak periods. Well, I think as a background, I need to say that uh, Denmark was kind of mainly mainly supplied by f- fossil fuels, also in, mm. in, in up to the seventies when we had the first oil crisis in seventy two, yeah, yeah. seventy three, and then the government decided that Denmark is, is too much depending on imported fuel from outside. It was too vulnerable. If if they close down the taps again and 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 then shut us down, that'll be kind of too expensive and too mm. costly and too complicated for us. So they.
then in, in the 70s, we started this green transition to be ha- have a more independent, self-organized structure based on wind power, solar energy, and so on and so forth. Yep. And you could say Vestas Wind Power is one of the biggest uh, world worldwide companies originally from Denmark. And, and <clears throat> I think politically, we decided to go that way, kind of all in, so to speak. So we said we will decommission centralized coal and gas-fired power stations and go to a decentralized structure using local materials as biomass for district heating. Mm-hmm. We live in a colder place, so we need a lot of space heating in the wintertime. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and wind power, because we live in a windy area also in the northern hem- hemisphere, there's a lot of good wind. We don't have so much solar, but we have decent solar in the summertime, so we have solar thermal for hot water. Uh, so a combination of biomass and, and solar in the summertime is really good also and efficient. Mm. And then we have these decent centralized combined heat and power systems where they took over the what you call the base load uh, production from the centralized coal uh, stations and they're almost gone all of them now mm. so we don't we don't have a lot of coal and oil left in in the system and we actually survived the transition from a centralized big production to a, a decentralized uh, small production but based on many production units mm. so we have a very very high quality production system and the infrastructure kind of we couldn't I mean, we couldn't complain about the quality of electricity, which is kind of the argument in many places that you can only have so much integrated uh, renewable energy in the system, then it'll go wobbly and unstable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I mean, we're, we're, already hearing, we're already hearing those sort of complaints now, Absolutely. which seem to be totally untrue. Now, just let's just wind back a bit, though, because what, one of the things that we're facing here in Australia and in other countries across the world is this incredible social negativity towards this transition. Uh, you, you know, if, if, you, if you go back to that time, you know, it, so- it sounds like uh, your minister almost came back like he'd won the World Cup or something. Thing, you know, so <laughs> we're very competitive in Denmark. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> we want to win. Yeah, win no, we, we know about the Danes here. <laughs> yeah. it's, um, but, but it's interesting because you, you've you've managed to get past that uh, impetus that you know we, we, we sort of all feel. And and here in Australia, even now, you know, right now today, you know, we're, we're on the tail end of one of the most extraordinary heat waves. Now, whether you, I was talking to one of our hosts over the over the weekend about was this directly linked to climate change, and she said, you know, that some of these links are difficult, but still, when it happens year after year, you start to think something's changing quite significant. And yet still we have this trouble. Now, you guys did it before some of these effects were really apparent. Yeah, I, d- I don't think we... <clears throat> well, with the CO2 emission apparently was a, was a, an argument during the, mm. the COP meetings. And, yeah, yeah. and the, the, it was COP3, so it's only three years after the Rio, uh, the big conference where they mm-hmm. actually started the whole COP idea about the world, the global meeting about the, the, the next goal of, of uh, energy transition yeah. or CO2 yep. emissions and, and the whole climate change things. So, so I think the Danish attitude to this is much more pragmatic about being independent from imported fuels from outside. What can we do about that? And how can we actually generate our own energy based on our own local resources and then administrate the, that, that what comes out of that uh, in our own system. Mm. And I think that is that is maybe one of the drivers. The other one is this independent structure. I mean, I think you you look like us also a little bit. Danes are very <laughs> we're independent. Very, yeah, we're vaguely for me. Yeah. <laughs> so, no, no, but we, we we like to be independent. We like to yeah. believe that we are our own masters in our own houses and in our own uh, uh, communities. And and the, the the transition from a centralized system where you're just a customer to mm. a local uh, system where you are co-owner yeah. or kind yeah. of a, a, a prosumer in a, in a way. Th- this is a natural transition for many people to say, that's good, that's what I want. Mm. You probably see it today in, in solar systems. People have a solar panel on the roof and they feel a little bit more independent and kind of their own masters in a way. Mm. 
so, so in a bigger scale, that is a community like my community could see that this is an opportunity to stay alive and keep the community thriving and create new jobs and new business potential because we then kind of didn't have the comp- competition from, from kind of imported expensive fuel yeah. from outside. Yeah. And that kind of led to a lot of, you could say, innovation and creativity for people to see that opportunity and, and to, to grasp it and, and, and take it and see what we can get out of it. I think this innovation kind of comes from this kind of Viking spirit of the <laughs> We want to win it. Did you all put your hats on? Yeah, we, only on Sundays. <laughs> so I'm interested to know why your community won this. You said it was a competition to yes. become this example. Was that because you have so much wind or because of your size or because socially you were so behind this? You know, what was it that won you the competition? What do you mean socially behind? Well, <laughs> as in back no, no, as yeah, in back I heard that too. <laughs> Sorry, that, that your community was, was really in favour. Yeah. No, this. no, no, no. You, you, you got a point in all, all of your questions here. Okay. I mean, socially behind, I, I read that as yes, we are socially challenged. Also, that I mean, no, no, but it's a good question because this is actually very important for, for, for the, <clears throat> the whole uh, spirit of, of, of transition. Because we are, we are suffering from depopulation, and people are moving away from the island because there's mm-hmm. a lag, lag of job, and young yeah. people they go to the city to educate, and they, they never come back. I think you also see that in a rural area in yeah. Australia, and, mm-hmm. and it is the big problem actually not a problem but it's it's kind of a depression mm. we culturally we feel a little bit depressed about that is it's kind of a it's not what we want things mm. to be we, we understand that it happens but we don't want it to happen mm. like that yeah so that was one reason number one the other reason was maybe that that was this was an opportunity that we kind of it was like a gift because how can you invent a new company a new structure in a local community where it's much easier to have it in the city. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So this was a kind of, it just fell in our laps and we just grafted and said, we can do this. So so I think uh, the community saw this as one of the kind of few really realistic opportunities to make change. Mm. Fantastic. Mm. Uh, so I've got, a, I've got three questions kind of rolled into one. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> so, so following on from Janie's point, there's obviously social challenges. And I guess what I'm interested in is how do you scale up what you achieved on your island? So if you want to think bigger, Presumably, there's going to be um, more social um, issues. There's going to be governance because it's going to have multiple layers of government. But there's also potentially going to be engineering challenges, I assume. And also, lastly, do we have to change our lifestyles as well or can you still have your cake and eat it too? So you can still essentially live the same way um, because you've got renewables or do you still at the same time have to modify your lifestyle? I know that's a lot of questions rolled into one, but I guess it's, it comes around how do you scale this up beyond your island to bigger areas or whole countries, if you like? Well, <clears throat> scalability is interesting also because it's an, I think the model of my island is maybe not scalable, but the inspiration from what we did is is definitely scalable. I mean, you, you, you can take many of the ideas and, and, and kind of experiences we had and, and bring them right over here and, and do it in local communities in, in your part of, of, of the country. It would be more or less the same uh, arguments for change, but it takes like governance. It takes planning. It's take, it takes engineering. And in actually the other order, it takes a framework from governance saying that we want to go that way because the legal structure has to be in favor of, of making this. We need to kind of control the power companies. I mean, no offense, but, but they've been in, in, in kind of a monopoly and they've been running this business for so many years that they think that they, they can make the laws also. I mean, I don't know how it is here, but that, now <laughs> yeah. I'm speaking about Denmark. Sounds familiar. Yeah, no, and, and then, then we need 
need government kind of to make up their mind on where we want to go with this. I mean, I, I, I know that you have a conflict with the coal mining industry and, and renewable energy and, and wind power and use all kind of arguments to go the other way around and say to them, wind power is unreliable and coal is much better, it's clean and it's not dangerous. And, and there's, there's a lot of different arguments in this also. And, and, and for this, you could say that there's an embedded interest in this from both sides, naturally. So this is market working, and we need somebody to control the market, and that is governance and policy. So the framework should be in order to make the model or the, the scalability of this also. If your country wants to go that way or your state wants to go that way, we need kind of to have the frame that can kind of make space for this and make the regulatory that will work in favor of this transition to a more decentralized local uh, sustainable energy production. And then people will have cake and mm. jobs and yeah. income. Yeah. So when you talk about a decentralised system, I mean, one of the things that, I mean, I think about other areas where we've done this, you know, I mean, in many regards, although they're run by big companies, the way our telecommunications system is run is very decentralised. You know, we have localised towers, they can, one can burn out, we can use another, this all, this all works, right? But in those cases, there is still someone responsible for them. So I'm curious about how you distribute the responsibility for, for these arrangements, especially if it's in local and rural communities where... Is there still a big power company responsible, or is the government responsible, or as you say, is it local ownership? In which case, it's a local problem. How do you how do you balance that up? Yeah, that that is a very good question, and that'll probably open up uh, the the how, how to understand this. In Denmark, that the state owns the high voltage transport system and mm-hmm. the distribution system. Then the local distribution system, the low voltage voltage, or the local what do you call that? The low voltage system, the distribution mm-hmm. system to houses yeah. is organized by power companies. Or utilities, and and so so the interesting thing is that the government government can then say the high voltage energy system is open for wind power, for solar energy, and for other sources also. They can make the laws according to what they want to have in the in the system. So you can tap onto this because you have the law in your hands. Mm. If if it was the power companies, they could say to them, mm, we don't really believe in wind power, so we don't allow you access to the grid. So we can do that by law. The whole system is administrated by something called EnergyNet.dk, okay. which is uh, which is uh, at, de- at, at the state-operated administrator of the whole infrastructure of of, the, of system, and they control the decentralized uh, suppliers or producers of energy in the system. So, it, it's kind of a smart energy system. So they keep it up and running at all times. Mm-hmm. And if there's a gale wind coming from the west, they, they need to operate it and lower the production from the from the power stations and raise it from the wind turbines and the other way around. So and they can do that. Mm-hmm. We have more than 50% integration, sometimes up to 100% wind power in the Danish system in total, and it's still working. Wow. Yeah. And you see, it only works because we are interconnected with, with Germany and Sweden. So we have, we have a bigger system out there mm-hmm. that can either absorb overproduction and then <coughs> we can t- buy it back again when it's not there. So it's more like at the state level. Australia is kind of a big country. Yeah, we're <laughs> seen to- yes. Don't tell anyone. <laughs> we noticed that. Too. No, but it's just to say you can also say that Denmark is that a model. Yeah, I mean, yeah, Denmark yeah. is such a small country, but it's not only Denmark because we interconnected with Germany and Sweden. Yeah. Then we, yeah. we, we scalability becomes more obvious. Yeah. Uh, so, I'm prior to making these changes to it to more renewable energy sources, as you're saying, you had a lot of a greater reliance on fossil fuels. So, what's happened now must involve. Um, a, a big change in the labour market in terms of engineering and upkeep and technology. How how smoothly has that transition gone? Well, I mean, obviously, we didn't have a lot of jobs in in the fossil industry because it happened elsewhere. Right. 
So so we took away jobs in your area maybe because we didn't we stopped importing <laughs> Australian coal. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that, that's totally fine. You have yeah. nothing. So. <laughs> so so we actually created jobs that's that was not there before. The wind industry in Denmark employs about thirty thousand people today, which is a really big industry. It it is a direct yeah. production, and then it's it's uh, subcontractors uh, producing all the other things that goes into a wind turbine. So so this is a, a big industry today, and and the whole technology development and science and research is also very big mm. because Denmark has been become this leading uh, nation uh, also for science and, and education and, and academic, uh, academic exercises. So we have a lot of consultancy and work uh, in, 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 in science and research uh, mm. also for this also. Mm. So I think politically, I think the politicians are happy about this because that proves the case that they, uh, yeah. it was actually a wise decision to, to go to a more decentralized local production. Mm. In Australia, one of the slightly frustrating kind of surface issues we've had around wind turbines is people just saying they don't like the look of them and saying they're <laughs> ugly, they're a blight on the landscape or concerns about endangered birds being, um, yeah. you know, at risk, all that sort of thing. Have you had any of those issues? Have people come out and just said, I don't want wind turbines? Yes. Um, we, we've gone through all these phases also, but we could say that we grew up with wind turbines. So when we started in the 17th, they were very small, the wind turbines, and then they grew with, with the development of them. So, so we started started up having like 25 meters high towers and now they are like <laughs> really really high uh, 300 <laughs> feet or i don't mm. know wow. and, and, and bigger mm. they, they are very big where the conflict starts when you lose sight of ownership mm. if it's not your wind turbine kind of in in, yes. in in all due respect for ownership in general if you don't understand why the turbines are outside your windows then you kind of have a conflict with neighbors saying to them, why are this big company investing in structures just outside my windows? Why don't they move them somewhere else? Because I don't like them here. Mm. Yeah. But if you invite people to participate in the ownership and, and become part of the process also so they understand and accept that this is happening because of a lot of good reasons, then the whole, I mean, ownership in, in I mean, the theoretical, theoretical and also in the practical ownership mm. becomes much more obvious. Yeah. And people say, okay, it's there for a reason. I'm part owner or I understand why it's there. So that's okay. I can live with that. Yep. Like you can live with a highway. I mean, mm. who, who loves highways? <laughs> and, yeah, car owners does, but but, but neighbours doesn't. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, Soren, I mean, this is an amazing achievement, I think, for any country in the world to have got there. And, and you know, Denmark in general is, is, you know, leading the way. I mean, what's, what's next for you guys, though? I mean, is it just uh, going around slapping every other country and saying, <laughs> yes. hurry up? I mean, is that, is that, or, is, or is, there a, is there a next phase in this in terms of what you want to be doing to perhaps put more into the grid of other countries and what you use yourself? What, what, what's coming up? It's kind of both and. I mean, we, I like to go around and slap people. In, yeah. In the <laughs> So, we, so, should we step back a few yeah. places? <laughs> or forward, you know. No, no, but but I no, I like I like the idea that we can cooperate with communities all over the world. Yeah, I'm working with Hepburn Wind now, uh, and mm, and, yeah. and Taryn Lane, uh, who who is who is a kind of a. A key person in, in the tradition in, in your area here also, and I like her very much because she's doing what I'm doing, and so so I have I have comrades in 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 in, in the game, uh, working in Japan and in America and Australia and other places also. And this movement is not just kind of like a hippie movement uh, trying to make mm. uh, everything uh, better and greener and and uh, and more fair. It is also a movement towards kind of making the obvious right thing in in, in local yeah. communities. Yeah. And I think it's the same pattern in Japan in Australia. 
Australia and in Denmark. So, so it's not that we have some kind of a say here, but but we are really willing to 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 make this transition, this uh, exchange of experiences here. And what's next for us is maybe also apart from making kind of a curriculum for sustainable education at the universities, which I think is is really needed. So the next generation know what what they're doing, and and they can kind of create uh, this kind of um, or move it into science. The other thing is also to talk not so much about kilowatt hours, but talk more about resources, mm-hmm. because yep. we're all working yep. with carbons and and carbons, embedded carbons, and coal is 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 also bio biocarbons mm-hmm. uh, somehow, and mm-hmm. and and the whole idea about we have kind of a carbon footprint is is, is basically a negative uh, today. I'd, I'd like to turn that into a positive to say to them, we have so much carbon we can administrate. It comes from food, administration of materials and all these sort of things. If we could do that in a better way, I think your Aboriginal mm. people here originally had a kind of 80,000 years of, of experience in how to kind of live in, in, in harmony with what, what, what material you had. Uh, around you, mm. if we can come come back to a more balanced system here, I think that would be an intelligent kind of next move, next step for society in general. Yeah. So, so I mean, we have to learn that also in Denmark. Even we think we're a little bit better than the rest of the world. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> that's that's yeah. still way to go. <laughs> yeah, I think we'll argue that we have a great respect for the Danes. Uh, <laughs> Soren Hermansen is appearing at the Sustainable Living Festival today in an event called "100% Clean Independence, Clean Energy Independence." Um, it's at three o'clock at the greenhouse at Berrangma, and um, you can see the details at SLF. That's the Sustainable Living Festival. Org. Au. Soren, thanks so much for joining us today. Good luck with the slapping. Continue to do it. Uh, it's very important. We're with you on that. And uh, have a great time for your short stay in Australia. Oh, thank you very much. I'll, I'll, I'll be fair but hard. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah, yeah fair. And, and, you know, good backswing, I say. Good backswing. Good luck. Three. Triple. In the studio with us now is Associate Professor Scott Mueller. He's from the Doherty Institute, just down in Parkville. Scott, welcome to Triple R. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Now, you work in an area that we don't, we haven't talked about, I don't think, much on the show. It's this whole thing around lymph nodes and that they swell up. You know, you go to the doctor and they, I guess they, they grab your neck and, you know, give you a bit of a feel there. And <laughs> I always thought, what the hell are you doing? That, mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, tell us a bit about lymph nodes, first of all. What are they, what are they there for? Well, they're really essential for the immune system and I'm an immunologist and the reason why we do what we do is to find out how the immune system can protect you from infection or disease and the lymph nodes are so critical for your immune cells to first get activated get excited against the pathogen and then they go off and clear it Hmm. and say you have a skin infection or or whatever Uh, your your lymph nodes are the sort of the control point of that that's where everything starts gets kicked off it's essential but why they get big and why they get sore and why the doctor has to check them. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's been a bit of an enigma. Yeah, and, and how many of them do we have in our body? I mean, we, everyone sort of knows, I think, about the ones in your neck and the ones under your armpits, I think. They're all, they're all over the body. <laughs> Just think about where you've been felt up by the doctor. <laughs> you know, hang on, I'm trying. Hang on, wait a minute. Let's uh, not go there. So we've got them from Those top to bottom. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Those aren't lymph nodes. <laughs> yeah, <I> mean, <laughs> they were small. Um, now we're we getting off topic. Yeah, we are. <laughs> so have it, have it, where are they in the body and how many do we have? Uh, the the exact number is probably a little bit variable, but there's a very large number, and mm. every little part of your body will drain to a, a lymph node somewhere. So if okay. you get bitten on your big toe, there's a lymph node it will drain to, and and therefore you can have an immune response there. So there's mm. there's 
many dozens of them around the body. Hmm. Now, let's talk about this swelling scenario because that's obviously what the doctor's looking for when mm. you go, and uh, presumably this is in indicative of that you have some sort of infection. Yes. And you've been looking at what causes this. So tell us what's going on with the, the swelling of the lymph nodes. So the assumption has always been you need that swelling. Mm -hmm. It's required for the immune response to do whatever it does. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's actually not known for sure yet whether that's true or not. But we're really interested in how the immune cells get activated. But they get activated within the lymph node, which is basically made up of a sort of a meshwork of so-called stromal cells, sort of like a, a lattice or a spider web. Mm -hmm. And it both makes the lymph node and also allows the immune cells to sort of sit within this framework. Yep. And so we know a lot about the immune cells, but we know very little about these so-called stromal cells. Um, and so we thought we'd better start to learn a bit more about them and what they do and how they make the lymph nodes get bigger. Okay. So we spent a lot of time analysing these cells, what they do during infection and disease. Yep. And it's actually quite amazing that they, they do a lot. They add a lot to the immune response. So it's not just your white blood cells, it's, it's these cells as well. Hmm. And, and, I mean, talk us through how you do that. I mean, is this something where you extract them, you grow them up in a dish? I mean, how do you actually go about studying what role they play? So we, uh, during an infection, if, if the lymph node's getting bigger, we'll have a bit of tissue and we'll digest it um, and then get the cells out. And we've done all kinds of different assays to look at what they do and how they do it. Mm -hmm. um, we did a lot of genetic analyses to look at um, how the cells are changing their gene expression and that was one of the most exciting things about what we found is these cells, they change thousands and thousands of genes when you have an infection and your lymph node swells. It's, mm. it's truly amazing how many things that they then add to the response. And they can either be helping the immune response or we now know that under some conditions they can actually be suppressing the immune response. And when you say change genes, I mean, are we talking permanently here or is this... No, it's, it, that was another thing that was quite surprising about the whole response is that they all get excited and they change many genes um, and presumably that supports the immune response. Mm -hmm. But then we looked after the disease had gone away and they'd completely returned to normal, absolutely back to baseline, which is unlike your immune cells, which mm. when they've seen a, an infection, on a genetic level, they're changed in the future to respond better. And, and actually these stromal cells, they went back to normal levels of gene expression but their actual physical network or sort of their framework of the lymphoid tissue was changed so they could support a subsequent immune response better. Mm. So, they are so they are learning. They're learning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're learning in a, in a, a physical a way rather way. than a genetic way. Yeah, that's interesting. So, so related with the fact that they're learning and you've got multiple lymph nodes within your body, are they all performing the same function or is that function dependent on the experience they've had? So you've had, like say, you've had an infection in your foot and the ones associated with that have experienced that and they've responded to that, do they then have a different function potentially to a lymph node somewhere else in the body? Yes, that's what we believe. Um, we don't have enough evidence to, to unequivocally say that, but we, we certainly see that in, in different areas of the body that may have had a certain infection. Those lymph nodes will look a bit different to somewhere else. So, so is it the... Is it the Immune, the, the white blood cells triggering a stromal response or a strom, stromal cells triggering a, a white blood cell, or is it simultaneous? And gi given that, uh, can you imagine new treatments that target the action of stromal cells? So for the first part of the question, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's a bit chicken and egg. Sure. Um, <laughs> what really starts it off um, is probably just the inflammation. You have 
things going on that gets yeah. them going. But then the white blood cells, yes, they certainly do give a signal to the stromal cells to make them keep going and, okay. and they sort of feed back on each other to make it work. Um, there are certain situations where it's really problematic. For instance, in HIV, the lymph nodes change a lot and, and not in a mm. good way. Mm. Um, they get fibrotic and the stromal cells get quite damaged and, and then there might be a, a suppressive action between right. the stromal cells and the immune response, which is obviously a bad thing. Yeah, yeah. And similarly in cancer, in many cancers where you have a solid tumour, actually the part of that tumour is made up of stromal cells which look a lot like the ones in the lymph nodes, but they're acting in a sort of a suppressive way mm. and they're suppressing the immune response. Mm. Um, oh, wow. So they can be good and bad and there's a lot we need to learn about what they can do for us and if we can use them to to boost our immune system or to fight tumours, for instance. So I wanted to ask you about cancer, because given that one of the things that happens to cancer sufferers is often they have a whole lot of lymph nodes removed yeah. during their treatment, if lymph nodes are so vital for the immune response and are actually learning and contributing to future immunity, what happens to you if you've lost, you know, some proportion of your lymph nodes? I think if you lose a few, it's probably not... It's not going to change your life. There are many others that can support the immune response and then you also have a spleen which can also support your immune um, system um, if you lose a lot of them it, it, I guess it's not entirely known how much of an effect it will have and part of what we're trying to do now actually is to see if you lose a lot of your lymph node or it gets damaged um, is there any way we can force it to regrow or regenerate um, typically they don't regenerate but we'd be very interested to see whether we can improve them coming back and after biopsies and, and cancer and so forth. Mm. It, it's a fascinating space, Scott, and, and certainly um, it's interesting, you know, it, it's 2017 and we're just working out some mm. of these things now. <laughs> we, you know, we've kind of known the immune system's been there for a while, so, it, it, I mean, it just, but it, you know, it gives you an idea of the complexity of, of the system that we're, we're talking about. And every time we have a guest in here talking about an aspect of the immune system, it seems as though the next revelation on a different part of it is coming out. So, um, this is interesting stuff, and I think that, uh, I think Jenny's question around um, how we deal with cancer and, mm -hmm. and this idea of using the immune system to fight cancer, I mean, this will play into that in a major way. Well done with this work, keep it up. Uh, I know this publication went to a very good journal um what was it which one cell know. reports <laughs> yes yes <laughs> physics guy you know i, I take your word for it you've um, heard of cells right yeah yeah it's good <laughs> stuff um congratulations on the work and thanks for talking to us today on three triple r absolutely thanks for having me it was a pleasure associate professor scott Mueller is from the doherty institute three triple You are listening to 3 Triple R. We're having fun here in the studio. People are asking about pushing buttons and all sorts of stuff. We just, <laughs> don't touch anything, people. Uh, no, we're only kidding. In the studio with us is Chris Bolton. He's from the Particulate Fluids Processing Centre of the University of Melbourne. Chris, welcome to Triple R. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Now, uh, you, you report to our own very own Dr. Ray, although at the university he's known as Professor Ray, isn't he? <laughs> <laughs> well, Ray is usually fine, but yeah, Professor Jackson <laughs> is my advisor. He doesn't make you call him Professor Ray. That's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's Just good. imagining what would happen if Chris said, yeah, no, actually he, he does. does. <laughs> <laughs> now, you guys we love you, Ray. <laughs> <laughs> he won't be listening. Uh, <laughs> he may, he may now. Um, now. Let's let's get on to the work, Chris, uh, because you, you guys have been doing some really interesting stuff because you've invented a new, essentially a new type of imaging, a new type of microscope that people have been using. First of all, run us um, just some details on 
What was the traditional way of doing some of this imaging of very small particles and why was it problematic? Right, so uh, we are really trying to build a tool and we have been building a tool to look at uh, tiny nanoparticles that move, rotate and interact with each other. Mm. And when I say tiny, I mean down on the nanoscale. So 100 million of these things could fit into a grain of sand. And with conventional microscopy, when you're looking at uh, nanoscale particles, we have a thing called the diffraction limit. You can't look at things with light uh, that are that small, uh, clearly, uh, if they're moving. So really the problem that we were encountering was an inability to generate data and observations of nanoparticles as they move and interact with interfaces. Uh, and what we've been building over the last couple of years is a tool that allows us to observe those particles as they move, rotate, and interact with surfaces. Mm. Now, now, you're talking about optical microscopes, aren't you? I mean, mm. use generally visible light like our eyes can use. I mean, there, there are <coughs> other types of microscopes, so, you know, scanning electron microscopes and all these sorts of things. I mean, is there a reason why you couldn't use those for this sort of work? Right. Well, uh, what you're talking about with a scanning electron microscope, for example, would work if you had particles that were stuck to a surface. Mm -hmm. But if you've got something that's moving around above an interface and you're looking at, for example, an assembly phenomenon, you're trying to figure out how carbon nanotubes lay down uh, as you're assembling something like a solar cell. If you want them to lay down in a sheet, for example, uh, uh, it's important to know how they're going to interact with each other as they settle down to that interface. Mm -hmm. So we need to have dynamic information about those systems. And we simply can't generate that with something like a scanning electron microscope. Mm. Uh, so our tool, yeah. hopefully, uh, uh, able to do show that. you is able to do that. All right. Now, talk us through this tool because it sounds, um, when you use the word tool, I think it's probably um, downgrading it a bit. But this, <laughs> this, is, quite, yeah. this is quite a, yeah. it's not a wrench, folks. Uh, <laughs> is it a nano wrench? <laughs> yeah, well, hey, that's what they're trying to build. Um, yeah, give, us, give us a bit about how, how you went about designing this because obviously, I mean, you, you're coming off the back of, you know, 150 years or more of, of microscope design. And all mm. of a sudden you've said, these guys aren't good enough, we're going to build a new one that works in a different way. <laughs> right. No so pressure. <laughs> over, over the last couple of years, basically, Ray and I have been designing a new kind of microscope. Uh, this is a microscope that's capable of looking at those nanoparticles as they move and rotate. Prior to that, we were actually using uh, a tool that was capable of tracking, by firing a laser at a particle, capable of tracking its one-dimensional position above a plate. Uh, that one was called Total Internal Reflection Microscopy, but the name is, uh, is not really <laughs> a very, very good name. Uh, <laughs> our basic insight was if we wanted to move from uh, looking at basic spheres uh, and we wanted to start looking at these more complex particles like nanotubes and viruses, things like that, uh, we needed to get more information out of the system. So essentially what we've done is taken a theory we had just before my, my PhD confirmation actually uh, uh, for, for getting more information on the system, we've added extra lasers into the system. Mm -hmm. So rather than using one laser, we now use uh, three or four lasers in order to extract more information about that rotation as well as the height. Uh, so it's a new kind of microscope uh, that gives us different information to what our, our previous tools were capable of doing. And are there downsides to this market? Is it slower? Is it, I mean, what, you know, why, why hasn't this sort of been done before? Well, because of that diffraction limit, uh, with an optical microscope, uh, uh, you, you can't look at these small particles, but you can acquire data with an optical microscope as fast as you can take pictures with mm -hmm. your, your camera. So in our case, we have a camera that can take about 100 to 1,000 different pictures um, in a second, which means that with our technique, even though it's an optical technique, we can get information about these nanoscale particles at that sort of timescale. So one millisecond timescales. Compare that with something like confocal microscopy or uh, scanning electron microscopy, and you've, you've gone from something that's completely static or something you need to look at for periods of minutes mm. to something you can acquire at, at, say, millisecond time intervals. And, and you guys, I mean, your particles are moving a long way over periods of minutes. So that, like, if you're trying to build up one photograph 
of them over that period. I mean, they've gone from point A to B to C, et cetera. Well, it's a dynamic measurement, actually. So yeah. what we're actually trying to do is generate essentially a video of these particles, but in three spatial dimensions where they're moving around, and then also their orientation. We're not actually generating an image, per se. We're generating data about how that particle is moving mm-hmm. and rotating in our system. Okay. So given that you have the ability to look at things that are moving, what do you see as the most exciting applications of this new technology? Okay, so uh, the examples that I usually give are that we're looking at two different types of things. We're looking at interactions, and we're also looking at things like assembly phenomena. Uh, for interactions, for example, a virus nanoparticle, you might want to know how that moves and interacts above a surface, and that might help you to design better antiviral drugs. Uh, in terms of assembly, again, carbon nanotubes, if they're aligned in those layers, like I said, perfect conductors for solar cells and microchips. But if you take the exact same particles and you weave them together, you get a material strong enough to stop bullets. So understanding the rules for controlling these sorts of interactions um, is something that would be very valuable is obviously utility in that but until now we've been working in the dark we haven't been able to generate the data about those particles as they move around above the surface so we haven't been able to 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 inspect the design rules for assembling these sorts of systems and understanding these interactions Mm. a couple of years ago you know some dudes won the nobel prize for inventing a new microscope (laughs) oh so it's been there just chucking it out there yeah well did you guys patent this but you know i mean is this a is this a technology that you can you can control i mean it's 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 a new type of microscope microscopes are big money across the world well, our goal really is to get as many people to use this as possible. Once we've uh, uh, started to generate data with this, we'll definitely obviously be putting out our designs uh, for other people to use. We want people to use this as a new window into that nanoscale uh, world. We want to have mm-hmm. people use this to probe all sorts of different systems. And it really is a very uh, uh, new instrument. We've only just gotten it working. We don't even have a good name for it yet. Uh, we call it the anisotropic total internal refraction microscope. <laughs> <laughs> um, wow. You don't new. have a good name <laughs> for it yet. You really, need some marketing yeah. people. You've really embraced <laughs> not having a good name. Good. <laughs> mm. uh, so, so it's a really very, very new technique and we're only just now starting to generate that data. Uh, we're looking at zinc oxide nanoparticles right now and yeah. looking at how they diffuse above a surface. Uh, because we've now got it set up to, to acquire data, I'm worried now that we're going to not have enough storage space for the data we're generating right. yeah, uh, because we're about to start using it uh, on a very large scale. So, so if you want people to use it, which I totally get, um, does it? Can they? Can they get it? Where does Where does one find access to this thing now? Uh, I think bespoke is a word that you yeah. might uh-huh. use sure. to describe this. Uh, we've really just gotten the first measurements off this instrument uh, uh, a couple of months ago. So what we're in the process of doing is making it a lot more user-friendly for myself sure, <laughs> because sure. I want to be able to attack lots of different systems. Uh, and then ultimately we want to make it portable enough that people can build this in a fairly simple way around the world. And really all you need is a handful of lasers and some very, very yeah, sure. carefully cut glass and you can, you can uh, do this uh, this. It, it sounds to me like the kind of thing that, that we'll be surprised at the applications, that you know, mm-hmm. we, we wouldn't have imagined that someone will want to do it for whatever, and, and that will just, as soon as they've got access to it, that'll start to happen more and more, I think. Well, that's the basic idea. We hope that this will be an enabling tool to uh, allow researchers who are looking at particular systems of nanoparticles to really attack their problems with mm-hmm. a new tool that can actually give them the information that they need. And additional to that is... Since we haven't had observational tools to look at particles with shape and composition where rotation's important, Mm -hmm. uh, and we've really been restricted to static measurements with things like scanning electron microscopes and really slow, long-time measurements with things like confocal microscopy, We've had about 100 years of Einstein's describing uh, Brownian motion for spheres. Yeah. We don't have the data, we haven't had the data uh, to look at particles that aren't spheres. Uh, we're really hoping that making observations with, uh, with this new tool, 
this horribly named APIRM, <laughs> uh, we can generate data to start gaining physical insight into the, the rules governing uh, the diffusion, uh, the, the Brownian diffusion of anisotropic particles where shape and composition are important. Nice. So we've got some fundamental physical questions to, to answer there as well, uh, in addition to the applied ones of interactions and assemblies. Sounds great, Chris. I'm going to have a chat to Ray about the name because I think it should be quintessentially Australian, like something like yeah. the, the best, the bloody awesome scope. Yeah. <laughs> uh, some, it's easy for people to remember. They know where its origin is. You know, yeah. I, know, I know Ray's American, but I reckon we could get him across this, the line on something. I reckon this program and its listeners are just a gold mine for good names. We could uh, we'll oh, put it to Ray, but we could have a vote. And you know what came? Yeah. Uh-huh. Boating McBoatface. I mean, <laughs> the best boat name ever. The Crowdsourcing. Public, yeah, what the could public could be really powerful. Uh, <laughs> Chris, thanks so much for coming in and chatting to us today. And uh, good luck with this. It's great to hear this sort of work going because mm. you, you don't hear very often about researchers designing new tools mm. to do their work these days. Everything's off the bloody shelf. Mm. And the really good research comes when the people using it understand how it was constructed. So well done and uh, keep up the good work and, and no doubt Ray will be talking about it when he comes in next. Thanks very much for having me. <laughs> Chris Bolton is from the Particular Fluid, Fluids Processing Centre at the University of Melbourne. We have got a few minutes left in the show and we wanted to talk about uh, Dr Jen and Dr Ewan last night went to see uh, <coughs> Richard Attenborough, is that right? Close. Uh, I think about his brother. Close. <laughs> it would have been even more special, actually, in a weird yeah. way. The one you with know, the sir in front of his name. Oh, you know, I've been working on that joke since yesterday, but I knew it'd piss you too off. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Chris, do the voice. Close enough. Which voice was that, Shane? <laughs> <laughs> so he's quite good. He's, he's, he's really good at it. It's like me and Mr Burns. Yeah, yeah. yeah no, it was a very yeah. intimate affair last night at the yeah, uh, Melbourne Exhibition Convention Centre. There was only 5,500 people in the audience. Just you and a few friends. So, yeah, very intimate. But, yeah. no, I, I absolutely loved it. It was he... I mean, everyone says he's a nice bloke and he's... He, you know, he comes across as honest and decent and he really felt like he was just kind of chatting. Mm. Um, he talked about a lot of his early days and I... I, even though I'm quite a big fan, I didn't know a lot of the early story, how he got his start. You know, the first job he ever applied for was in um, BBC Radio and he didn't get an interview. Is that right? <coughs> oh, wow. Yeah, well, and, then, there, people. and then originally yeah. he was the sound recorder, so he was going off on these missions with... Uh, the, the TV show was called Zoo Quest and it was all about the um, zoo in London going out and catching wild animals oh, to bring boy. back to the zoo in the 60s. And he was the sound recordist, <coughs> but then the, the zoo guy who was the presenter and the animal handler got really sick with nasty tropical diseases because, you know, they went to Africa and, and South mm, America mm. and Southeast Asia and David was literally told on the spot, well, you're going to have to be the person in front of the camera because there's no one else who can do it and he had very, mm. very little experience and he oh, was wow. really candid about, this, you know, the mistakes mm. he made. He showed really funny footage of himself trying to catch a giant anteater as a, I guess, late 20s, early 30s, this gangly, tall <laughs> bloke chasing around trying to grab the tail of this animal and missing and, you know, he just really kind of told it like it was. Mm. Interesting. Yeah, yeah was classic stories that are right right time, right place. And he stumbled through. I mean, he essentially transitioned in a little way from being Steve Irwin-esque in his early yeah, career, yeah. Yeah, like yeah, running absolutely. around. Like he showed pictures of him climbing a tree, <coughs> cutting a branch off the tree to get this snake to fall out of the tree that he could then jump on. I mean, that's classic <laughs> Steve Irwin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you see this guy who's all in his blue shirt and all softly spoken and yes. quite formal. So he's had an amazing career. When you think about... You know, he helped Monty Python get their start as well. People mm. don't realise that. Like, he's had an amazing career. Yeah. But the thing that I hadn't really given him credit for was just how risky a lot of what they mm. did was. Because you sort of think of him now and he's got 100 minders yes. and he's
And he was very open in saying, look, a lot of what you see on my shows, I'm not there. I've got all these camera people who go out and film stuff for me. I just narrate them. I'm not there a lot of the time. And he was very open about that and giving credit to other people. But, Mm. you know, in the early days, it was just him and a cameraman. And they went to places that no white people had ever been to before. They had no idea how they'd be received. You know, the stories of cannibals in New Guinea, they're all true. He told a story about getting caught in a whirlpool in this crazy little wooden boat um, off the coast of Indonesia trying to find the island of Komodo and the, the captain had already told him in their limited ability to <clears throat> to communicate, well, actually, I've never been there. I don't know where it is. <laughs> and Sir David, with his naval oh, wow. background, so Sir David was in the Navy, he tried to navigate and they got caught in this whirlpool and, and it sounded like, you know, it was pretty risky. Mm. They may or may not have survived. And I sort of hadn't realised that a, before tough. he became Sir David, he was just out there doing crazy things because of his love of animals and his his immense drive to capture things on, on film and on sound to show people. Mm. It's a tough <laughs> choice, isn't it? You know, it gets stuck in a whirlpool spinning around in circles or on an island full of Komodo dragons. So. <laughs> That's true. Point <laughs> toss, really. Did, did, he, did he talk about you? I mean, you know, the, the, the knighthood, you know, obviously is a big, big thing and, and he's had yep. it for a long time now. Did he talk about, you know, how he got to that point? I mean, obviously his contributions in this area are so extraordinary. I mean, it's hard uh, to see so it was something he's, specific. Or, he's just so humble. I think yeah. he, and he was constantly kind of, I guess, um, giving credit to others that had mm. helped him along the way. And no, I, I don't think that's really that important to him. I mean, sure, it's important to him, but it's not important for him to say that. So, yeah. no, it was much more about, I guess, the journey that he'd been on and how he'd sort of come to be where he is now. So, mm. no. And they showed quite a bit of, the, you know, the, the claymation little snippets they did oh, yeah. for his 90th. Yeah. They showed quite a few of them and he laughed along with the crowd at, you know, pe- kind of poking fun at himself. I mean, he just, you know, if he's really that nice, well, no, put it this way, if he's not really that nice, gee, he does a damn good <laughs> job like, of yeah, yeah, faking yeah, yeah, yeah. it because That's he right. just came across as, yeah, immensely humble, feeling just lucky that he'd managed to have this lifetime that, mm. you know, it couldn't happen now. And, he, you know, the stories he told about, you know, trying to convince the BBC just to let them, you know, let him take off for four months at a time and, and having to Do say, well, if you stuff, can just yeah. give us £300 for airfares and another £300 for living expenses, we'll bring you back six really good episodes. And they're kind of like, oh, all right then, you know, off you go. We'll see you in four months. Did he, did he touch on that on that concept that, you know, like you say, it couldn't happen now? Does, did he touch on what the future's going to be? Because, I mean, everybody knows him. Everybody, you know, of our generation and ilk thinks he's great. But it, so what, what is, what's going to fill that, that gap? Or is, is there no gap because we've just changed yeah, it didn't really get to that, I think, either. So, I mean, that's oh a great God, you question. You one job. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I should have asked. <laughs> he, did, he did take questions from the audience, awesome. so we all got to submit questions, and I think they chose six, and people got okay. down to come, got to come and ask their questions. Ooh. But, look, he's certainly optimistic, I would say. You know, he, he did end with kind of a call to arms that, you mm. know, we've stuffed this up pretty comprehensively mm. and we need to change. Um, but it wasn't a lecture. You know, he, he was very much just kind of saying, well, this is how I see things, and I've had the benefit of nine years yeah. Of, yeah. of observing the world. I mean, not many people live to 90 and can still get up on stage and yeah. be completely oh, yeah. mentally with it, um, be engaging, captivating, making jokes. Yeah, I mean, you know, it was yeah. amazing. And, and uh, that was the final thing I wanted to ask you. How, how sprightly is he at 90? Are we, are we looking at another 10, 15 years of... of of Dave? Uh, he was, I mean, he walked across stage multiple times. Yeah. He was, yeah. He, On he, face value, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's good. And it was, th- it was a three-hour show. Mm. Wow. You know, it's a long time. He took a break in the middle, but, you know, it got late. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, three hours for anyone is uh, yeah. three hours for us yeah. in our youth, or you guys in your youth, me. Uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, it's, it, it knocks it out of you, so it is tough. Well, I'm glad to see that you guys uh, got to hang out with one of your heroes. Mm. And, no, it was uh, a privilege to be you there. You know, you, and you can wipe the drool 
away from your phone. Uh, no, I'm going to keep it forever. Uh, keep it forever. <laughs> uh, we're going to have to end the show and hand over to the team from Edith. Uh, Chris KP, thanks very much. Good to see you. It's my pleasure. Yes, and Dr. Ewan, Dr. Jen, good Thank to see you, you both. Thank you. I'm Dr. Shane. We will chat science again next week. We have some amazing interviews coming up in the in the next few weeks. I even I recorded one of them with a guy from NASA yesterday, which was very exciting, which we'll play for you in the coming month. Uh, until then, remember science is everywhere. Thanks for listening to 3 R, and have a great Sunday. This has been a podcast from 3 R, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.